Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Carlos Alcaraz is your back-to-back Madrid Open champion. He ends the improbable and glorious Cinderella run of Jan Lennart Struff, the lucky loser, first ever lucky loser to make a Masters 1000 final, beats him in three sets. Struff really uh, solidified and crystallized his worthiness of being in that final because he made Alcaraz extremely uncomfortable and provided a very, very entertaining final. But ultimately, uh, the hometown Carlos Alcaraz, home country, not hometown, uh, prevails for a second year in a row in Madrid. And uh, I'm looking forward to breaking it down. After I'm done breaking down the match, I do want to talk about a couple of the missteps that the management of the tournament made. Uh, because it's too funny not to talk about. I'm very amused by it, and I need to talk about it because it's funny, and I really can't believe what I saw last week. Before I even get to that, and before I get to the match, I want to address this uh, this Masters 1000 format stuff. And I said in the mailbag that this is the kind of thing that we're not going to be talking about in three years. We'll get used to it. It'll fade into the distance. We are going to forget that it was ever another way. Not completely forget, but but believe me, we will go through all of these tournaments without really thinking about it much at all. But for now, we're being introduced to these new changes, and there there is quite a bit of things that are different, that feel different. And some of them are, I think, unintended effects that are kind of interesting to watch play out. So let me just run through them real quick. Uh, first of all, the obvious one, our our guy Struff here would not have made the cut for qualifying. If Madrid was a one-week Masters 1000, Struff is not in the tournament. So that's the most wild thing that happened this week right off the bat. Kind of, I don't know, ironic uh, that the first year they do this, someone who literally was only afforded a chance to play because the format changed went all the way to the final. And let me just be specific here. 89 to make the qualifying of Madrid last year. 89 was the cut. This year it was 201, which I was really surprised to see. That's such a a high cut. But basically, you know, with the 96 player draw, uh, and a lot of players, I, I suppose, just looking at the numbers, electing not to play Madrid qualifying and, you know, going to play a challenger instead, uh, the cut was 201. So that's the first thing. And and by the way, Struff, uh, the week of Monte Carlo, 
which was the week of the cutoff, because two weeks before the main draw, that is when the rankings kind of lock. He was ranked 100. Had a nice run in Monte Carlo and was actually up to uh, entering entering this Madrid. He was up to 65, and now he'll be in the top 30. So seated for Wimbledon and not a guy I would want to play at Wimbledon. Next one. Men's doubles champion, Rublev Hachinov. More top singles players, and we've talked a lot about what can happen to make doubles a little bit more relevant. That was another thing that came up on a mailbag. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but obviously stars playing is the easy, quick fix solution for, for doubles. But, you know, how does that happen is a whole other question. And I feel like this, and again, this was not the intention of making Masters two weeks long, but we've seen it at Indian Wells year after year after year. Guys don't know what to do. And as a result, they want to stay in the tournament for as long as possible. So if you lose first round, especially if you are, let's say, a European in Indian Wells or an American at Madrid, there's nowhere for you to go for an entire week. There's nothing for two weeks. There's nothing for you to do. And that is why you play doubles. You play doubles out of boredom, and you also play doubles because you can, because there is a day off in between your matches. So you are likely, from a scheduling standpoint, to be able to play doubles and have a pretty comfortable uh, schedule. More singles players are going to play doubles if they are going to make these Masters two weeks long, which they are. So Rublev Hatchinov won doubles. I thought that was an immediate effect that we saw. Last one. Uh, if you are a challenger event in a geographically convenient location, you are also benefiting from bored tennis players or tennis players who are looking for matches. Who won the Aix-en-Provence challenger last week? Andy Murray. He beat Tommy Paul in the final. That's like a, that's a 500. That's, that's a 250. That is uh, a tour event in terms of the quality of that draw. Because you have a conveniently located challenger with, you know, I guess enough attractive traits to to draw a, a pretty good field. And we're going to see a lot of that. So that's all I got. Just want to note the differences that we saw right away in the first ever two-week-long Madrid. Now let's talk about the final. We definitely saw again in this final why Struff is tough for Alcaraz. Struff had a win over Alcaraz. Struff pushed Alcaraz to five sets at Wimbledon at a time when Jan Lennard was really not in top form yet coming off of injury. The reason Struff is so tough for Alcaraz is his return style makes it so that there is nothing more important in terms of holding serve than to hit high-quality serves consistently. And that might sound almost ridiculously obvious. Like, yeah, you want to hit good serves to hold serve. But for, for Struff, there's more emphasis on the serve itself. There's less emphasis on everything that comes after the serve. There is a hyper-focus on the serve because if you hit a bad one, you are punished. And if you hit a good one, you've likely won the point flat out. Uh, because either you got a free point or you have Jan Lennard Struff defending, which he's not 
he's not going to beat you with his defense, right? So it's all about the serve itself. And that's the one thing that Carlitos is still not great at. Hitting quality serves, first serves especially, over and over and over again. The other thing is uh, Alcaraz made more errors than usual in this match because he craves control over the point. Alcaraz craves control. And in order to have control over the point when you're playing Struff, because Struff craves the same thing, you have to keep the ball close to the lines. You are not going to be able to give him a lot of neutral balls or he is going to take control away from you. He is going to take it to you uh, with his pace off of both wings and with his net rushing. So Alcaraz, because of his nature, he wants he wants control. He wants to dictate. He was a little bit edgy in this match, and he made 31 unforced errors. But that is all about the pressure that Struff applies, both on the return of serve and in rally. It's about the pressure he applies. He deserves tons of credit for all of that. So going back to kind of the first point that, well, Alcaraz needs to find serves that work. Let's start with what Alcaraz did on serve. I don't think it looked good in the first set. I don't. He won the first set, but not because of his serve. I thought he looked, he gave Struff way too many looks. Uh, I think he got attacked successfully very, very often off of the Struff return in the first set. In the second set, a lot of the same, especially in the one game that Struff broke, and that was all that he required in, in that second set. Um, and then in the third set, Alcaraz solved it. And the the way he solved it was he found the two serves that worked. Ideally, if Carlitos was a great server, he would have multiple serves working on both the deuce and the at. He would have a lot of options. But as the match progressed and he, you know, worked on a on using a couple different serves, it turned out only two serves worked. I'll get there in a moment. Let's take a look at, at the graphics. If you're watching on YouTube, you're going to be able to see this. On the ad side in the first set, this was Alcaraz's spread. You can see uh, a couple of serves, well, three serves T. About five serves wide, about five serves body. And then on the... So, basically, he's favoring the backhand side of Struff. But look look at the spots. They're not good. They're not into the body. They're not close to the sideline. You can see the two balls, the, the gold balls are the points that he won. The two balls that he actually put close to the line, he won. He won those points. And then there were a lot of red balls, you see, which he are points that he lost, uh, which are just not in good locations. And now we look at the deuce side, still in the first set. And again, he's mixing up his serves. Yes, you know, 50% to the body, that's the majority, but there's still 21% going T, 29% going wide. And he's not finding great success here, although he, he was better on the deuce side in the first set, but he doesn't really know exactly what he wants to do. And again, a lot of these, these spots, some of them did successfully get into the body, especially when there was depth in the service box, but also many of them just missed their mark and gave Struff a good look at an attackable return 
And Struff is one of the rare players in men's tennis who on a first serve return, if the ball is in the strike zone, he's going to attack. Now let's go to the third set. Do you kind of see the difference here in the ball location? He only goes once T. That was on. That was when he was serving for the match, and it was on the second point, and he hit an ace. The one time he went T, he hit an ace. Other than that, every serve went wide, and he went to the one serve that he can consistently locate, which is the kick serve. The kick serve short in the box, and he was not getting attacked on that serve because he was accomplishing good width and good height. He was forcing, oftentimes forcing Shroof to even take the left hand off the racket and kind of reach for the backhand slice return uh, because that kick serve by Alcaraz, it's not, it's not fast, but that's the one that he controls well, especially going wide on the ad side. And he got so many, every, every time he hit that serve well, it pretty much never came back. Shroof was horrendous at returning the kick wide uh, whenever Alcaraz got it short in the box. And look what he did in the third set. He just went to it over and over and over again. On the deuce side, he also found the serve that worked, and it was the body serve. And based on how this is split up by by uh, thirds of the court, if you're watching on YouTube, it says that he hit 33% of serves down the tee. But if you really look at where the serves landed, you know that's not really true. It looks like a couple of times he just misplaced a body serve. He hit every single serve on the deuce side body. It, he did not go wide. He did not go tee. Every time on the first serve, it went to the body, which is a good play against a six foot five guy who hugs the baseline on return. Those were the two serves that worked. Uh, was Alcaraz serving well enough to hit fast serves close to the sidelines or in the corners? No. It wasn't that simple for him. And if Alcaraz was a great server, it would have been just that simple. It would have been mix in some body serves. It's good against Roof, but mainly hit hard serves into the corners. And that's how we're going to keep Struff from attacking. Alcaraz doesn't have that luxury right now. But that is by no means, by no means do I look at what happened in this match as a negative. It's an enormous positive. He had options to play with. He experimented. He identified what worked. And once he found what worked, he used them very, very often. And he was not deterred from the winning tactics. And that's so much better than most players could say. Most players, they face a problem, they hit a wall, and that's it. They lose. They lose because of it. Alcaraz hit a wall here in, in a way where he did not have the serving day I thought he would. I thought he was going to hit a lot of aces and a lot of service winners uh, hitting close to the sidelines. And... It was going to be a showcase for Alcaraz's serve in altitude, good serving conditions against somebody who crowds the service box and looks to be aggressive. And I thought we were going to see uh, kind of a serving exhibition from Alcaraz. And it wasn't that. He, he didn't have it. His serve in a lot of ways didn't pass the test, but his mind did. Kick wide, body deuce, 
that pushed him through in the third set. And it got him the free points that he needed. Um, now, you know, free points is not really exactly what you're going for uh, when you go body. N yet, yet nonetheless, Alcaraz in the third set, first serve unreturned, got 58%. That's the number that I thought that he would accomplish in this match. Didn't get it in the first set. He was at 34%. Didn't get it in the second set. He was at 33%. It, it was not until the third that Alcaraz's serve actually started working. All right, let's talk about return. Um, I was curious to see if Alcaraz would change what he was doing for the entirety of the tournament. Alcaraz faced a lot of good servers throughout the tournament, as I talked about in the preview, and he did a tremendous job getting lots of returns back in play against all of those big servers, uh, from Alexander Zverev to Karen Hatchinov to Borna Chorich. All of them ended up with uh, fairly low success rates on, you know, earning a lot of free points on serve. But against Strufu serves and volleys, I was curious to see if Alcaraz would change his return position, his deep return position, that was allowing him to cover the service box so well. And as I thought he should do, he did not change his return position. He uh, was not going to offer Struf any easy way out. Struf really benefited from the ability to find clutch, unreturnable serves against Tsitsipas and Karatsev. And Alcaraz, for the most part, made sure that that wasn't going to happen. Deep return position, allow the serve and volley, and make him execute. That was the game plan for Alcaraz, and Struf ended up getting only 24% Total serves, total serves unreturned. And that allowed Alcaraz to use his speed and his shot making to give himself a chance to try to counterattack off of Struf serve and volley. The break point in the third set, big, big break point, was a great example of this. Struf serve and volleyed. Alcaraz had a safe return right through the middle that he got low. Uh, Struff hit a first volley deep in the court. And Alcaraz uh, just crushed this passing, this forehand passing shot down the line, which Struff, and this is an interesting kind of thing to, to debate, should Struff have made that volley or or was it, you know, really difficult? Uh, did Alcaraz's pass have so much speed on it that it, it wasn't a routine volley? It, it's kind of in between the two. Most really, really great volleyers will tell you, no matter how hard somebody hits the ball, assuming they're on the baseline, no matter how somebody, hard somebody hits the ball, if it's in my pocket, I should make the volley. And this was kind of in Struff's pocket, but he just got beat for pace, which usually great volleyers feel like that shouldn't happen to them at the highest level uh, possible, which, which Struff is obviously at. So, I don't know. Interesting debate. But the point is, for Alcaraz, and, and in the first set, man, Struff didn't get us. Struff got no, nothing unreturned in the first set. Every single. In fact, I don't. he didn't get a single first serve unreturned in the first set. Not, not one. Alcaraz missed two second serve returns in the first set, and those were the only free points that Struff got. So Carlitos did a really good job of that. Uh, and 
you know, Struff at net off the serve and volley. He was pretty good. He won 73% of serve and volley points. Uh, but Alcaraz did seem to have a plan. Um, he went to the Struff backhand. I talked about the missed backhand volley on the big break point. Struff hit 28 backhand volleys, 15 forehand volleys. Doesn't feel like a coincidence. That feels like scouting. That feels like Alcaraz's team identified a, w a weaker side on the volley for Struff, and it was the backhand side. And and there were some key moments uh, on the Struff backhand volley that were were poor moments on, on his end. So I feel like that really did work out in a way that that validated validated Alcaraz's plan to go more to the Struff backhand. There was something key on the on the serve and volley. You know, 73% is a good number for Struff, but Alcaraz did do something good uh, early on in the match, I thought. This was in the first set at 3-all. Uh, just hunting forehands on the second return uh, to try to uh, mitigate Struff's serve and volley off of the second serve. And Alcaraz did this a couple of times. I'm, I'm showing uh, some screenshots on YouTube. Uh, Alcaraz did this a couple of times early on where on the second serve, he made sure to, to find himself a forehand, which uh, really made it difficult for Struff to serve in volley because Alcaraz is, uh, has so much dip and so much speed and just hit, hit a couple of clean passing shot winners. So Struff pretty much had to stay back on the second serve because of what Alcaraz did hunting forehands, which was also a really good job by... Carlitos. It should be said when we're talking about the Alcaraz return, Struff didn't serve his best. Not not even close. And this is where I, I think you, you might look at and, and ask the question, did Struff have his legs coming into this match at 100%? The answer was probably no. I mean, he, he came through qualifying and then in the main draw after uh, blowing out Lorenzo Sinego, Played, what was it? Uh, six straight three three setters. Let me make sure I get the number right. Uh, no, it was, it was five. So he played five. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, five uh, three setters in a row. So that is... No. One, two, three. Yeah, yeah, it was five. So uh, all five of those matches went over two hours long. And the serving was subpar. And you do wonder if that came down to the, the energy from Struff. In the first set, Struff double faulted twice on both of Alcaraz's breaks. In the second set, Struff, that, that was his best serving set, especially percentage-wise, getting making first serves in play. But Alcaraz should have gotten the second set back on serve because at 3-1, Struff missed like eight of his first nine first, serve, first serves in that 3-1 game. And Alcaraz ended up getting five break points in the game. And on the first four, he had really good opportunities to win the point. And I don't think Alcaraz's backhand was bad as a whole. But in, in that game, it was a little bit of a horror show on the break points. If you go back and watch the break points, really four opportunities for Alcaraz's backhand to make something good happen, and it 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 went the other way on him every time. On uh, the fifth break point was well saved, good serve plus one by Struff. In the third set, 
Stroof's first serve averaged three miles per hour slower than the first, two miles per hour slower than the second, and he only made 50%. So first serve percentage by set, 40% in the first set. I mean, that's it's brutal. 59% in the second set and 50% in the third set. I want to show you guys the stats by Stroof on serve uh, for the tournament. And you can see ace rate against Shelton, against Tsitsipas, against Karatsev, double-digit ace rate. Against Alcaraz, it's 3.8%. So he, he really wasn't hitting aces at all. And he also he hit two aces late in the third set when he was already in a huge hole. So he ended the match with uh, four aces, but he really had two I think until his final service game. So aces were were basically rendered out of the equation. Again, I, I do think Alcaraz's deep return position deserves a little bit of credit for that. And then look at first serves in. You know, against uh, against Shelton, he was at 60%. Against uh, Kachin, he was at 67%. Against Tsitsipas, he was at 68%. Against Karatsev, he was at 59%. Struggled a little bit, you know, but Lajevic, 55%, not bad. Uh, the Senego match is super weird statistically because his serving numbers are actually really bad, yet he won that match 6-3-6-1. Uh, point is, really big dip here for Struff in this final in ace percentage and first serves in percentage. Which are two things that, you know, especially first serves in, are, are largely in his hands. You know, you, you can't credit Alcaraz too much for that, uh, which is which is where you kind of look to Struff's legs and, and wonder if he had a, a full gas tank there. Uh, I do want to talk about uh, Alcaraz's lobs. I feel like it's this is a good moment to highlight that. I kind of feel like they should get some of the same adulation that the drop shot does for Alcaraz. And I had a feeling in this match that the lobs were going to come up big because I've I've been watching Struff for a while now and I've noticed he gets on top of the net. So I figured Alcaraz, someone who has great lobs, is going to throw up some lobs. And I think in the first two games, Alcaraz must have hit like five lobs, something absurd like that. In the second game, he actually hit a couple of bad lobs. Uh, now, you know, some tough ones, but some of them that were, that were unsuccessful. In the first game, though, came up big. 15-40, uh, break point, serve and volley, Struff. And this half volley was into the open court. I mean, Alcaraz had to run, you know, 30 feet to get to this ball. And from a low contact point with the slice grip, he throws up the lob, which is not really a conventional shot from this position. And he gives Struff this high backhand. I don't want to call it a overhead. It's more of a high backhand volley, which Struff hits long. So that's the first break of serve in the first set. And then you fast forward to 5-4 with Alcaraz trying to serve out the set. And he's facing break point. So Struff threatening to get this to five all. And Alcaraz hits a drop shot. And Struff shovels a two-hander down the line. And now Alcaraz is on his forehand. And Struff's tight in on the net after the drop shot. And this time Alcaraz hits a lob that's so good that Struff doesn't even, you know, doesn't even go for it. And it lands really almost right on the baseline. 
And it's it's very rare for players to be to have good lobs on their forehand side. Maybe it's because the passing shots are generally really good on the forehand. So players just don't train the lob, don't have those repetitions because they're always trying to just blow it right by because they can. But Alcaraz is super comfortable both on the forehand and the backhand lob. And I think that the skill set is the same as the drop shot. Alcaraz does an awesome job of feeling where his opponent is on the court. And that's part of what makes his drop shots great is that he knows when to hit him because he feels his opponent's court position. And it's the same thing with his lobs. He just, he has an awareness, a court awareness about him that's that's very, very special. And I, I think an awesome superpower to have in the game of tennis. And then obviously the execution side of things has a lot to do with your feel in your hands. And uh, again, I, I don't think it's dissimilar to the to the drop shot. And although I think, you know, obviously because of the mechanics of, of modern tennis in a way, we're going to see more Alcaraz drop shots than we will lobs all the time. I, I just think the lob deserves to be in that same conversation. I, and again, I don't think it's as important as the drop shot, but I do think it's as good. And this was a match, you know, you look at two crucial points in the first set. Uh, this was a match where where the Carlos Alcaraz lob mattered. I don't want to take too long on this, but let's talk about Madrid and some of the missteps that were were made here. Feliciano Lopez is the tournament director. I don't think it's fair to put everything on him like it's a dictatorship and that he makes all the decisions and that he's on top of everything. Uh, but I, I just do want to say like he is kind of the face of this at the time. Uh, this started, I suppose, although players do get upset with Madrid because they don't like playing until 1, 2 a.m., which uh, I think is understandable. I get that. Uh, but other than that, uh, this started with the whole cake size incident where Alcaraz got this uh, ridiculously large cake. I mean, it's comical how big the cake is. No cake should be that big ever. I mean, in the world, it took four people. Four people had to carry out the cake. It should not take four people to carry cake to max. Sabalenka, uh, earlier in the tournament, it was her birthday, and they gave her a normal-sized cake, which is actually probably a nice gesture. I don't know if all tournaments always give cakes to everybody whose birthday it is. I imagine not, but Madrid likes to do that, and good for them. Feliciano Lopez, in defense, in defense of Sabalenka's cake being smaller than Alcaraz's cake, which there were corners of social media that was, you know, calling out uh, that discrepancy for uh, gender inequality. Feliciano Lopez tweets about it. Instead of just letting it blow by, which it would have, the worst thing you can do when people are upset at you at social media is to defend yourself on social media. There's nothing worse you can do. You know, you're, you're literally just amplifying it. And everybody who's going to be mad, uh, unless you have an unbelievable defense, an unbelievable defense they're only going to get more angry. And Feliciano Lopez was like, Alcaraz made the sem made the final and he was playing on center court as if anybody remembers even which court Sabalenka was playing on or if that, if any, it, and then, and then he showed Holger Runa's cake and was like, Runa's cake is small. 
nobody who was mad about the cake size is going to change your mind because of that tweet. The tweet is not helping. So that was a pretty amateur move by Lopez. And then Victoria Azarenka was one of the players who I think has, you know, harbors some other resentments about the Madrid Open in general to quote tweet that and say the cake thing is basically an accurate representation of the the treatment of women at the Madrid Open. Um, Victoria Azarenka and Beatrice Haddad Maya made the doubles final against Goff and Pagula. And the tournament embroiled in this kind of cake gate controversy with Azarenka being one of the people on Twitter who amplified it. The tournament did not let the players address the crowd after the doubles final, after the women's doubles final, they didn't give them a microphone because they were afraid of what they were going to say. Coco Golf tweeted and it got 1.3 million impressions. They didn't let her give a speech at the end of the match. So she tweeted and 1.3 million people saw it. Jessica Pagula Quote tweeted it. Azarenka, of course, retweeted. 231,000 people saw Jesse Pagula's quote tweet. And the quote tweet was an emoji of a zipped mouth, a hand on chin thinking, and a shrug. As if to say, uh, you weren't going to let us talk, really? So 231,000 people saw that. Azarenka tweeted how it was hard to explain to her son, Leo, that mommy isn't able to say hello to him at the trophy ceremony. And 464.6 thousand people saw the tweet. You think you're going to censor these people? Are you crazy? You think you're going to say... How many people... Do you think we're watching the Madrid women's doubles trophy ceremony? Like, how many people are tuned into that? Not a lot. Not 1.3 million people. Add in Azarenka, add in Pagula, you get 2 million impressions. I don't know what they were up to on Instagram, on other social media. That's just Twitter. Uh, but wow, I mean, what a, what a, a lesson they could learn from Googling Streisand effect. When you try to quiet people, when you try to, when you try to censor people, it only gets louder. And that's what happened here. And despite that laughable misstep laughable misstep from a PR standpoint, as if that was going to go well to not let them talk. And that was going to minimize the bad PR that was going to be put out. Despite that misstep, it probably wasn't the most relevant or the worst of the week. Because when I typed into Google, 
Madrid Open women. That's it. Madrid Open women. The second result that came up on Sunday was Arena Sabalenka defeats Iga Fiontech with impressive performance for second Madrid Open final win. The first result that came up was Madrid Open caught up in sexism storm over ball girls and face formal complaint. I am not the right person to discuss whether or not it is damaging that the ball people crews were exclusively women in crop tops and short uh, shorts. But I will say this. I was a U.S. Open ball boy for a couple of years, and it was an experience that to this day I treasure. A formative experience of my childhood. And it would have been pretty disappointing, pretty frustrating, if I wasn't able to have that experience because I didn't look good enough or I didn't look good at all in a crop top. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.